Now, years ago, I heard a, a preacher story that uh, said that this evangelist had come to town and, and uh, he got to the, the church and there was only one person uh, sitting in the pews. And he got up there and he just preached and preached and preached for an hour. And he got done and the man came up and says, did a great job, preacher. He says, but you know, I'm a farmer. And if I go to the field and there's only one cow, I don't throw the whole load out there for that one cow. He got the message. I didn't. So get ready. Uh, <laughs> I, I warned Bonnie not to go too long because I had a long sermon today. I, again, toyed with putting this off, but I, I just don't like doing that. And uh, you've expressed your faithfulness by coming to worship and uh, we need to continue our study in Revelation. We're going to get into uh, a rather lengthy passage this morning. We're going to cover two chapters like we did last week. But they fit together, and it's almost impossible to separate them out and get the flow of what is being revealed to us in chapters 17 and 18. And actually, the message that we get from here is very relevant. I just saw in the paper today that the Beauty and the Beast is going to be playing locally uh, in another month. And the Beauty and the Beast is a story, I think, with which we're all familiar. It's a story about how a beautiful young lady fell in love with a man who looked like a beast after she once learned that he was beautiful inside. It's a story that teaches us to look beneath the skin, to look into a man's heart before judging him. That people are not always what they at first seem to be. Well, we've got a beauty and beast story in the book of Revelation as well. Only here it's the beauty who is not all she at first seems to be. Here we're reminded that sometimes beauty is only skin deep and that beneath an attractive and beautifully adorned exterior might lay a heart full of abominations and immoralities. Let's take a look at this beauty and beast this morning and we begin with a look at the beauty. Revelation 17 verses 1 through 6. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead was a name written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. 
Now, in the 16th chapter of Revelation, we saw the bowls of God's wrath poured out upon those who had the mark of the beast on their foreheads, upon unrepentant humanity. And at the seventh bowl, which pictured the final judgment, we saw Babylon the Great destroyed, split into three parts. And we were told that Babylon was given the cup of the wine of God's fierce wrath. Well, in chapter 17, we have one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls coming to John, telling him that he's about to see the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, the image of a harlot is new to Revelation, but what she represents we've seen before. The name that was written on her forehead was Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So the harlot is simply another picture for the Babylon we saw destroyed at the pouring out of the seventh bowl. This is just a close-up view of Babylon. And we're seeing it pictured as a harlot because this graphically portrays the character of Babylon. But the city of Babylon had long been destroyed by the time of this writing. So where is this Babylon? Well, as we've already noted, another center of seduction, another place of luxury and idolatry and immorality had arisen to take its place in John's day. And that was the city of Rome. So whenever John spoke of Babylon, his hearers immediately thought of Rome. It was Rome that had seduced or conquered the kings of the earth and had led them into both physical and spiritual immorality. The excesses of Rome's immorality are legendary. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, was the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas of the first century. Not only did her physical immorality offend God, Rome's spiritual harlotry was even worse. She seduced or forced the world into making her a god. At the time of John's writing, everyone in the Roman Empire was required by law to declare Caesar is Lord and to burn incense on the altars of the state. She was indeed a great harlot, seducing or forcing those who had been betrothed to God to abandon their commitment to him. And it was as such that John saw her when he was transported in the spirit into the wilderness. There he saw her sitting on a scarlet beast, a beast with seven heads emblazoned with blasphemous names and ten horns. Now, we've seen this beast before. It's the beast that came up out of the sea. But since we're going to see him again up close in the rest of the chapter, let's just focus for now all of our attention on the woman. The first thing we notice is she's dressed in purple and scarlet, the most luxurious of fabrics in the ancient world, and is adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. She's a picture of beauty, of everything that's attractive and alluring. In her hand is a golden cup, 
A cup that promises a wonderful drink, but a cup that is instead full of abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. John then notices her headband. A headband similar to those worn by harlots in the ancient world that advertised their profession and their name. This harlot's name was a mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. Now, a mystery in the Bible is something unknown to the masses, but something God has revealed. And God is here revealing that Babylon is the mother of harlots and abominations. That Babylon, while appearing to be beautiful, is in reality the source of great immorality and abominations against God. The most devastating abomination being her desire to destroy the church, to drink the blood of the saints. The blood of the witnesses of Jesus. She not only wants to destroy, or to lead the world astray, but to devour those who would resist her seductions. And when John saw her, he wondered greatly. And so do we. Who's the harlot today? You know, ancient Babylon and imperial Rome are both gone. But we obviously still have centers of seduction, places of luxury and glamour and vice. And every such place can be viewed as Babylon the Great, or at least one of her offspring. For every place where men are seduced into making riches or pleasure their God can be viewed as Babylon. Every center of seduction that would draw men away from God and lead them into immorality can be viewed as a great harlot. In fact, anything that would hold out the golden cup of promise, anything that looks good on the outside but is filled with abominations on the inside is the deceptive beauty of Revelation. So let's go on to the beast upon which she rides. Verses 7 through 18. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast, that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has yet to come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. 
And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay, we've seen this beast before. The beast from the sea that we saw in chapter 13 is apparently the same beast we have pictured here. In our study of the 13th chapter, we determined that the beast was an earthly ally of Satan, that the beast was in fact civil government, that had forgotten their role as a minister of God, and that any government that sets itself up as God or is worshipped as God or depended upon as if it were God is a beast. It's not what God ordained government to be, a servant that seeks to serve him and his people as ordained. We also noted that one of the heads of the beast pictured in chapter 13 had been slain but had come back to life. Now, this would probably have been viewed by Christians of John's day as a picture of the Nero Redivivus. I think that's the way you pronounce it. Myth. It means revived. It's the belief that Nero, the first emperor to officially persecute Christians, would come back to life and continue his persecutions. Now, many no doubt believe that Domitian, the emperor who banished John to Patmos and revived the persecution of Christians, fulfilled that myth. And it's possible that the angel's reference to the fact in chapter 17 that the beast was and is not and will come is also a reflection of that myth. But it's probably even more likely that this is simply a description of the nature of the beast, that he comes and goes. He's apparent for a while, then disappears, only to appear again. If the beast is governmental structures that set themselves up to be God, that, that makes sense. For such governments rise and fall all the time. And every time one rises to power and puts itself in the position of being a god, the masses follow after it, awed by the power and might that it wields. The satanic nature of such powers is evidenced by the fact that the angel said it was about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. Now, some have suggested this picture is the final manifestation of the beast, an antichrist government that will be in power when Christ returns for the final conflict, and that may very well be inherent in the vision. But there's little doubt that the primary message being conveyed to John's original readers was that the Roman Empire was a beast. And that's confirmed by the fact that the angel said the seven heads of the beast were seven mountains upon which the woman 
was seated. Rome was built on seven hills. And even those seven mountains might also serve as an apocalyptic symbol of awesome might and strength, they would also no doubt be viewed as a reference to the city of Rome. The seductive harlot sat upon a powerful beast. The seduction of the city was in league with the power of the empire. Together they functioned as a unit. And those who wouldn't yield to the seduction of the harlot were viciously attacked by the beast. The statement, the seven heads were also seven kings, five who had fallen, one who is currently reigning and one who is yet to come, has been the object of much speculation. Some try to identify specific emperors here. Others see in this a line of kingdoms rather than specific kings. But either way, there are problems. I don't believe anyone should should state with absolute assurance that he's got this all figured out, what these kings or kingdoms are or were. Perhaps the safest thing to do is to just keep this general and let it simply be a statement to the effect that various kingdoms, kings, and rulers align themselves and will continue to align themselves with the beast. That there is a corrupting nature to power in the hands of man. And over and over again, we're going to see governments align themselves against the kingdom of God. But the Lamb of God will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with him, the called and chosen and faithful, will share in his victory. That positive message of revelation keeps coming through over and over again in these visions. But then, likewise, the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues that come under the influence that fall victim to the seduction of the harlot will share her fate. A fate surprisingly executed by the beast himself. For once the beast has the masses in his clutches, he no longer needs the deception of the harlot. The facade of beauty is stripped away, and the things that draw men away from God are exposed for what they really are. God uses the beast to fulfill his purposes. And the destruction of the beauty that was begun by the beast will be finished by God himself. Let's take a look at that judgment. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she had become a dwelling place of demons, and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passions of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensualities. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she has been paid, or as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. To the same degree, give her torment and mourning, for she says in her heart, 
I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Okay. As John was contemplating the beauty and the beast, another angel, a glorious angel, descended from heaven in his vision. And the angel cried out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In his vision, he heard the judgment as if it had already taken place. The angel declared that the great city of luxury and splendor had become the dwelling place of demons and vultures. The reason for her judgment was that she had corrupted the nations and kings and merchants of earth. She had led them astray with promises of riches and pleasure and had rewarded them as promised. But she had failed to reveal to them the consequences of such. At that point, another voice from heaven was heard saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plagues. God was telling his people to cut themselves off from the city of earthly delights. To avoid the sensual pleasures of immorality if they wanted to avoid the plagues of judgment that were coming upon the harlot. She had thought she could get away with it. That she could do whatever she wanted and even lead others to share in her sins without fear of reprisal. But God hadn't overlooked her sins. He just let them pile up until the time was right to pronounce judgment on her. And that time had come, at least in the vision. God was about to give her her due. To the same degree that she had glorified herself and lived sensuously, to that degree she would be given torment and mourning. She had arrogantly declared herself to be a queen above the sorrows of life in the hand of God, but was about to discover that the God who sits in judgment is a strong God indeed. And one day, she would be hit with plagues, pestilence, mourning, famine, and fire. In one fell swoop, the mighty hand of God would destroy her. This was to be the judgment of Rome, and this is the judgment of every center of sensual delights and immorality. Babylon is doomed even while reveling in glory and seducing others into the pleasures of her sin. And who will mourn her destruction? Let's see. Verses 9 through 20. And the kings of the earth, who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice 
and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. And the fruit you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you. And men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city! She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. It's quite a picture. Who will mourn at Babylon's destruction? Those who have shared in her immorality and those who have profited. From her vices. Those who have sold out to her seduction. Those who thought they could live for the pleasures of today. With no thought about the consequences tomorrow. When they see her judgment, they weep and mourn. Everything they thought was of value becomes worthless. And they're left with nothing but despair. What a picture this is of life built around things. A life that has been deceived by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the vainglory of life. They couldn't believe it in just one hour. Such great wealth had been laid waste. Their hope was gone. Their future was in the rubble of Rome. But not everyone mourned the passing of Babylon, the hosts of heaven, the saints, the apostles, the prophets. They all rejoiced for the truthfulness of God's word had been vindicated. Though it may seem for a time that sin has its rewards, judgment is sure. Those who stand fast in the face of the harlot's seduction and the fury of the beast will one day rejoice while the rest of the world throws dust on its head and cries and weeps and mourns inconsolably. Babylon's end is sure. Her beauty won't last forever. One day she will be gone. Verses 21 through 24. 
And a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. Because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. To symbolize the end of Babylon, a strong angel took up a stone the size of a great millstone and threw it into the sea. As the waters closed in around it, she disappeared and was gone. And the life she fostered was brought to an end. Even the good things of life that coexisted with her sin will one day be gone. The sound of her music will be drowned in the sea. Her craftsmen and artisans will be gone. The preparation of food will come to a halt. Darkness will prevail in her cities, and the celebrations of this life will cease. Everything that is in any way connected with Babylon will one day be gone. Even the good things she provided. So we better not build our lives on the things of this world. Even the good things. For they will one day be done away with. This entire world that we know and as we know it will one day be gone. It will be judged for the way it has responded to the prophets God has sent and for the way it has treated his people. Our only hope is to be not of this world and to refuse to participate in her sins. To be cleansed from whatever sins into which we've been seduced and to build our lives on the things that will remain after Babylon is gone. Thanks be to God. This we can do because of Jesus Christ. If Babylon and her wealth were to be laid waste this hour, and everything this world holds dear was to disappear, how would you respond? Would you cry and weep and mourn? Or would you rejoice because something better is coming? Let's even look at this through a slightly less 
apocalyptic lens. If the stock market was to crash, you were to lose everything you have, and our country was put into subjection to her creditors, would you lose all hope? If you've been so charmed by the world's delights that you've lost sight of the things that are higher and nobler, you would. And the sad thing is, many Christians have been as deceived by the things of the world as have people who live in the world. It's so easy for us to be seduced by the great harlot. It's so easy for us to get so caught up in the things of this life that if they were taken away, we would throw dust on our heads and all hope would be gone. You know, we live in a time where scary scenarios are painted by the left and the right. We live in a day when many forecast the downfall of our of our nation, our culture, our wealth. Let's not just live in denial and say, oh, that could never happen. It can happen. It has happened to the Babylons throughout history. And if our society has become a Babylon today, which for many I'm afraid it has, it will someday see the judgment of God. When those things are gone, what will remain? If your life has been built around those things that this world provides, if they have become the God you worship, the source of your security, you will be lost in despair. And ultimately judged with Babylon herself. It's my prayer that none of us, and that's all of us, ever allow the material things with which God has so greatly blessed us. That will allow them to be used by Satan to blind us to the things that are infinitely more valuable that we will never be seduced into thinking our life consists in the abundance of the things we possess. It took us two chapters to get there. I hope we've arrived.